Uh, hello and welcome to the first of the Lucabs uh, podcast. This is kind of like a pilot episode. Uh, I'm here, I'm Jake, the co-president of Lucabs. I'm also here with Munez, the other co-president of Lucabs. And we have a really exciting guest called George on today. Uh, George is a recent, recent economics grad in the University of Leeds, uh, ex-president and founder of Lucabs, and now is operations lead at Encode. Welcome, George. Thank you very much, Jake. Good to be here. Thank you for having yeah. me. Thank, thank you for agreeing to speak. Um, and also, Munis. Yeah, yeah um, thank you so much for that. Thank you. Um, so this is our first podcast series, and we're really, really excited. And we're also, we're really honored to have you as our first guest for the series. Um, so to kick off, um, we wanted to ask you, why did you choose to do economics at uni in the first place? And why Leeds? Yeah, so um, my degree is economics and finance. And... I've always kind of had a bit of a, a head for business and um, I was one of those kids at school that used to sell sweets and stuff to, to his mates until the school actually brought in cashless catering so everyone had to like put money on their firm and then so that ruined that business and then I went on to like um, trade FIFA ultimate team players and used to sell coins to my friends as well there so I've always enjoyed like trading and things like that um, and that kind of yeah my A levels were business studies government and politics and maths of statistics. So I'd always known that I'd wanted to go into to business, perhaps banking as well. And when I was looking at university degrees, uh, saw Leeds offered an economics and finance one. And I'd never studied economics before and I didn't really know what it was. Um, but I went to like one of the open days and I uh, was really interested, looked, looked pretty cool. So I thought, yeah, economics and finance is the, is the one for me. Um, but Leeds was chosen because it's great. I think it was the best university in the time at the time for that for that degree and my sister also went to university of leeds the year before me so i'd been up to visit her saw how cool um leeds was as a city and thought yeah i can see myself here and it's that perfect distance from home where it's too far for your parents to come to visit you every weekend but um not not too far so you can't go home every every few months um yeah. i'm sure, you, sure you're very different moon as being in <laughs> <laughs> quite a way away to be honest leeds is lovely it's probably the best student city in the UK. I really love it. I really love it. And um, towards like the end of second year was really when I um, started having a connection with the city. And mm-hmm. yeah, we know what happened next. <laughs> yeah, no idea. Yeah. But yeah, Leeds is a, such a lovely city as well. Just um, the, the nightlife, obviously, but also the kind of amenities you have, the connections to other places. And there's actually quite a, a good growing tech scene in Leeds and I've been to a few kind of tech events whilst I was at university that I would uh, highly recommend Leeds Digital Drinks being being one of them and just such a, a friendly place but also cheap to live and cheap to go out so perfect student city. Did, yeah, you, did, you, did you apply for anywhere else? Do you uh, my first two applications were Leeds if I can remember correctly so it was economics and finance then international business and finance and then the second two were Loughborough I think one was to do banking and one was just a finance one. Um, but yeah, luckily I got into Leeds because Loughborough is a, a bit of a, a trek from anywhere. So, so it's, yeah, it's a mass, massive trek. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember getting to Loughborough actually. I, I got an offer from there and nice. I was actually seriously considering it because the city's mm-hmm. actually, it's quite nice. Um, the campus is also really cool. But then when I thought about it, I was like, yeah, this is, um, the city's entirely away from civilization. The nearest city away is like an entire track away will i actually be able to do my degree for three years and i was like yeah. nope it's <laughs> great if you're good at sports but um yeah, yeah. i'm not so good at sports so <laughs> leaves is the one for me i mean speaking of a, a track you you went on to do a year abroad in canada what was that like yeah so i never actually intended to do a year abroad um I always had my mindset, like, do a year in industry, it'll be great, get great connections, great experience, and then gives you some money for final year so you can enjoy yourself um, back at university. So I did, um, I did actually did some applications for placement years, uh, mainly investment banking and such. And then whilst going through those, uh, I had, I think it was a personal tutor meeting. So we have those kind of uh, free a year with just someone from the economics department at Leeds. And uh, the, my personal tutor was very, very pro year abroad. And he kind of told me, showed me some reviews of like messages people have sent him after year abroad saying it's like the best year of their life, blah, blah, blah. And I was, I just thought I might as well apply because then I can choose between uh, investment banking or a year abroad. And then the more I looked into it and the more kind of the universities that people have and asked people that had been to their universities, what their experience was like, 
kind of fell in love with the idea of a year abroad as well. And then a lot of my friends said they were going to do a year abroad. So I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to have to seriously apply to this. So I applied to uh, two universities in Canada as my first two choices, uh, both in Toronto. And then I think I, the third one was in China. So it would have been a bit of a, a bit of a different story. <laughs> but luckily I got into um, to Rice University in Toronto, which was uh, absolutely fantastic. Great, great place to be. It was right in the center of Toronto accommodation. We were kind of two blocks north of Young Dundas Square, which is like the Times Square of, of Toronto. Um, so it was, it was an incredible experience. Went on a few holidays to Cuba and Mexico during it. And the, uh, the workload wasn't too, too much as well. So it was nice and kind of relaxing for the year. Met a lot of cool people that I've been to visit all over Europe uh, since returning and uh, would highly recommend a year abroad. And you can still gain experience like in working through summer internships, spring weeks, um, working part-time whilst you're on a year abroad because you have a lot of spare time. So that's what I did. Um, so I kind of got the best of both worlds, I think in that sense, which was, which was really fun. That's really cool. So looking back at it, um, what do you think is really different in terms of living in Canada and mm -hmm. living in Leeds? I'm pretty sure there's quite a difference in vibes um, in what you did every day, the student aspect as well. Um, so recalling back to those days, what do you feel were the big differences? Yeah, I think because the, the study abroad year generally is, is pass fail, uh, at least when I did. Um, so you don't have as much emphasis on the university work and the, the kind of modules you can take there can be slightly easier. So I was taking like an introduction to marketing one, um, which is very nice and multiple choice exams. So you can relax a bit on the the actual academic work side and because I'd done quite a lot of extracurricular stuff during my first and second year at Leeds with the Blue Cab Society playing for the baseball team, um, Trading Investment Society, a few other things, I kind of wanted to, to take a step back for a year and just relax a bit. Um, so I didn't do as much as that. I went to a few of the Ryerson blockchain events and a few um, entrepreneurship events as well. But um, I think the main difference was, was that, that you could kind of relax a bit more, uh, have more fun going out with friends and going kind of on trips to other places, Quebec, Montreal, um, and a few places abroad. And then the other thing, the weather, obviously. Um, so it, obviously everyone thinks Canada is super cold, but when we arrived in kind of August, um, 30 degrees and sunny for the first month or two. Um, so like the first day we got into our accommodation, which had no air con, cause it was like the cheapest one you could get. Um, we all had to like go out and buy fans, try and yank all the, the windows open cause they had like, the stop locks on um and like we had the first pre-drinks in our flat and it was absolutely roasting everyone just kept having to every hour go upstairs to the rooftop and like cool down a bit um but then that kind of plummets off in maybe october starts becoming quite fall really nice really beautiful and then as soon as you get to hit to january it's just like six inches of snow everywhere uh freezing cold have to get a coat on every time you like step outside even if it's just to, to get a bit of fresh air so yeah that that kind of changed your plans a bit you couldn't just say oh let's go let's go for a walk because that would entail getting like, dressed up in all your thermals, your coat, your snow boots, and then you walk for 30 minutes and you're still freezing, so you have to <laughs> pop in somewhere as well. But yeah, I'd say those are the, the main two differences between Leeds student life and uh, Toronto. Also a bit a bit more expensive in Toronto, obviously. That sounds like a really colorful um, story because I thinking about how things are right now, um, I, I really empathize um, some students who actually secured year abroad um, looking yeah. to go abroad to like Japan, um, America, elsewhere, and their year abroad um, actually turned out to be a year abroad in front of their screen, um, you know, in Leeds or like wherever mm -hmm. they are, and that's quite sad. So hopefully the world can resume back um, to that sort of situation and we um, can have students uh, pursuing those wonderful opportunities you just mentioned. Yeah, definitely. It's very, very heartbreaking that that's happened to, to some people. And uh, one of my friends, she actually, she's a year abroad in Australia and all her lectures are kind of at midnight and 2am and she's still having to attend those. So um, yeah, that's not fun. But hopefully next year, the people that have applied for, student, for year abroad can, can actually go somewhere. Fingers crossed. <laughs> How slash when did you get like, interested in crypto? I mean, you alluded to Lucabs then. Um, you know, yeah. what kind of led you down that road, you know? Interesting to hear. Yeah, so my kind of intro to, to crypto and blockchain was through the Leeds University Trading and Investment Society. So each year they run, or they did when I was there, they run a kind of virtual fund 
where you can join and then they say, right, you're going to be put into one of these two teams and then you can choose between uh, equities, commodities, bonds, whatever you'd like to kind of specialize in. Um, and then you, you go to your kind of first team fund meeting and you get split into those groups. So I chose commodities because I didn't really know much about commodities. I'd done a bit of equity trading before. And uh, so I went to the commodities and they just handed out this big list of here's all the assets you can kind of choose to specialize in, do your research profiles, decide when would be a good, good time to trade. And uh, one of the assets on there was Bitcoin. So I said, as the kind of sheet was passed around, I said, yeah, I'll do, I'll do Bitcoin. And they asked you to choose a, can a country as well. And I chose Canada, which is quite cool. Um, and then further around the circle, another guy uh, chose Bitcoin, who turned out to be Emmanuel. So after the meeting, we kind of uh, had a little chat. And uh, as we were kind of walking back to our student halls, we are just chatting all about Bitcoin. Turns out he'd been in it uh, for several years before then. So this was in 2016. He'd been in it since 2014, I think, doing some Bitcoin brokering and things like that. So uh, he kind of gave me a little, little intro to crypto. And from there, started doing some own research as well. Uh, got more and more involved in it. Me and Emmanuel started kind of having weekly discussions around cool crypto projects, uh, cool investments. So it was mainly from the finance side at that time. But then as we kept doing this research into kind of looking into which projects would be cool to invest in, we started learning more and more about blockchain. And then I think it was in kind of May, it was during exams, weirdly. Um, myself and Emmanuel said it'd be a great idea to set up a society because we looked online and there was only two existing societies in the UK at the time, which were um, Oxford and Cambridge had blockchain societies. But both of those were very um, research focused and run by professors and PhDs and such. And we thought it'd be just a cool one cool way to, to educate other lead students around what Bitcoin is, what blockchain is and how it could potentially affect their future. So we thought, yeah, we'll set one up and did that in June 2017 after our exams finished, which involved um, kind of pitching to the student union and proving that Bitcoin wasn't this massive Ponzi scheme, um, <laughs> which is which is difficult. Yeah, we had to kind of show the applications of blockchain technology and, and other things and then get 20 signatures of people saying they'd be interested to, to participate in the society and Luckily, that all went through. So we started the, uh, the after the summer in September. Was there like a specific catalyst that pushed you to um, create Lucaps? Because I know you were interested in uh, blockchain and Bitcoin in the development, and you were um, talking about that with Emmanuel. But was there a specific event or a set of events that got you to, you know, go, okay, I'm going to make a society um, <clears throat> around this, and I'll do it in Leeds. And uh, when you actually had that idea, how was it like actually implementing that envision? Was it was it daunting? Because I, I mean, just imagining how there were only two societies in the entire UK at that time, and you know, and having to start that from the ground up, how was that experience like? Yeah, I, th I think it was exciting more than anything, just because we obviously at the time there was the, the major price increase as well. So that was always obviously quite fun. So we strongly believed in, in Bitcoin and blockchain technology at that time. And we were just doing so much research and we were even kind of creating little research reports that each of us could use and kind of say, this is why I think this is a good investment, blah, 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 and kind of critique each other and see, and then kind of decide uh, sometimes together, sometimes separately to invest. And um, I think just from like having that much knowledge and I kind of lived and breathed crypto apart from university stuff and kind of having fun because it was first year um which is kind of every every evening i just kind of spent a bit of time researching crypto looking at markets looking at new projects and thought there's kind of it's wasteful having just us having all this information and um we had a lot of friends i think might have been the main catalyst saying i'd love to learn more about this love, love to learn what it actually is and how blockchain technology works so then we kind of got together and said let's let's see what the process is for setting up a society um and yeah, so we, we went to the student union, told them our, our idea, and then had the kind of, I think it was two or three meetings we had to have with them to, to convince them that there was demand for it and it wasn't kind of some scam or Ponzi scheme. Um, and then, yeah, that was uh, that was pretty much it. But I think it was really the excitement because there's so much taking off in the space at that time and kind of a lot of institutional, uh, I think that was around the time that kind of Goldman and stuff started putting out price targets for Bitcoin. So it gave it a bit more legitimacy, I think. Um, and then, yeah, the excitement carried us through. Um, but yeah, running a society on the other hand in a bear market is not quite so much fun. That does sound so exciting. Cause um, I mean, for Jake and I, um, we, we, took on, we took on this role running this society in a very 
uh, in a very strange way, to be honest. I mean, mm -hmm. reflecting back on it, Jake and I have been working together almost for a year and we haven't actually met each other outside of our <laughs> screen. And that's actually really strange. Wow. Yeah. Um, all the same, it's really exciting um, to carry on um, bringing the focus of blockchain in lead. So um, from both of us, a thank you for getting that road um, paved away and started. Yeah, thank you very much for, for continuing it as you have. You've done an amazing job running it throughout a pandemic and not being able to have those virtual interact, physical interactions and kind of this after event socials, which is always the, the highlight for me. Um, so being able to kind of retain a sense of community and keep a good attendance at events has been been really good to see. Um, so thank you for continuing it. And obviously that led you on to create the Leeds Finance Summit, didn't it? So can you talk about how you did that and kind of what set you up creating Leeds Finance Summit? Sure, yeah. Uh, and quite timely as well, because I think it's happening this, yeah. this week, is it? It's yeah. just done yeah. today. Today. Yeah. Yeah. Today. Yeah. I'll have to tune in. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so the Leeds Finance Summit was um, a guy called Nabil Al-Hassan's idea. He was very involved in lots of societies at Leeds. He'd helped to co-found the, the Women in Leadership Society and kind of helped us out with Blue Cabs as well. And he's involved in Lutus. Um, he's a really, really helpful guy. And he he basically kept, rang up the three presidents or the presidents of Lutus, the president of the Women in Leadership Society and, and myself as um, well, co-president of Blue Cabs in, I think it was early 2018. And you said, look, it'd be great to, I've been to Edinburgh Finance Conference and a couple others, and he thinks we could do a really great thing in Leeds because Leeds is the, I think the second, kind of the second financial capital of, of the UK after, after London. So he thought it'd be great to, to kind of set that up. And uh, we said, right, when are we going to do it? And he said, March, which was in two months. Bearing in mind, none of us had ever run a conference before and had, had ever done anything kind of of the scale that he wanted to do. Um, but we got a bit of a team together. I think there's maybe eight, eight of us in total, a few from each society, and then just put a lot and lot, a lot of hard work into it. But um, yeah, Nabil and um, Nikita Sadir was really kind of instrumental in that happening. And it it was kind of a bit of, you had to, to because it was the first one, you can't say like, look, these are the cool speakers we've had last year, or this is how many students we've had. Here's, here's some cool photos. So you're kind of telling the speakers, we're going to guarantee that there's at least a hundred students there. And then you tell the students is going to be these great speakers. This is why you should come along. Um, so kind of trying to balance that. And, and luckily it, it did all work out. I think there was three, 400 uh, ticket sales. And at one point there was at least kind of 250 people in the, the big lecture hall. And we had some great speakers from the likes of Bank of England, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs. Um, one from a startup I was working for at the time did a, a workshop as well, which is quite cool on kind of crypto and fintech as well. So it wasn't just all mainstream finance. Um, but yeah, it was it was tough and it was obviously everyone's doing their degree and running their own societies alongside it. So it took a lot of effort, but it was definitely worth it to, to make that event happen and, and see that that's continuing as well. Yeah, that was that. To be honest, um, when I first heard about it, I was I was really I was really in awe of how, you know, a student led effort could actually bring in um, bring in audiences from um, outside of Leeds and speakers from outside of Leeds. And the, the best thing is how, at least for me, I think how this has continued um, since, um, since, it, since it actually began. Um, I think that's really cool. For instance, last year, I think they were able to bring in um, the head of EMEA in uh, BlackRock. Yeah. Um, her name, I, I think you were there, right? Yeah, um, yeah, I attended the event. Yeah, it was fantastic. Was Some great speakers again. Exactly. She was such an interesting speaker. Um, I'm really, it was a really proud moment for me to, um, you know, to be a lead student. Um, I wanted to ask you, right? So upon graduation, um, you, you, went into, you went into a job first, and then you made a transition um, to to a partner we were actually working with last year, introduced by yourself, uh, and you've made the move there. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about your journey um, going into the employment space right in the middle of the pandemic and then moving into crossing into um, the more blockchain-focused uh, firm? Uh, do you want to tell us about your journey um, for that? Yeah, I'll, I'll be uh, delighted to. So, Throughout my kind of university time, I'd worked for a few different startups, mainly in blockchain space, um, in summers and kind of part-time throughout throughout studies. And 
So I, I had kind of a lot of experience working in step, small tech startups. The maximum team was like five that I'd worked in, um, which is obviously brings a lot of responsibility and you end up just doing no end of different things, which is really fun because it keeps, you're not just doing the same thing over and over again. Um, so I had experience in that, but kind of when I was getting towards graduation, I wasn't sure that I wanted to, to graduate and go straight into working for a, a startup. Um, just because kind of job security and gaining more professional connections through working at large companies and kind of training schemes. Um, so it was, a, it was a tough decision as well. Um, I did did consider it for a while and I did applications to different places um, <clears throat> as well. But in the end, um, I think Gartner, Gartner was the, the company that I worked for straight after graduating. Um, and that came about through, they, they specifically target Leeds University students because they've had some good students in the past that have come through and joined their sales team. Um, so I got a message from them and thought it's a really cool company, kind of the world's largest um, IT and advisory company that really does kind of have a massive footprint on how technology works in the world. I think they, 75% uh, of the Fortune 500 are Gartner clients. So pretty much three out of the four big companies are, are using Gartner Insights. So it's very attractive from that sense that you're going to be interacting with kind of chief information officers, chief technology officers at these large companies and advising them, helping link them up with Gartner analysts and research. So that appealed to me quite a lot. And I'd always thought I'd been like kind of decent at sales and that, that aspect of, of work. So I thought I'd do the interview, see what happens. I was interviewing for a few other places at the time as well. And then um, did all the interviews with Gartner. There's quite a few actually, I think there's six or seven stages. You had to do sales role plays, which were the first time I'd ever done that. So that was uh, interesting. And then get the feedback from that and make sure you improve upon it in the next role play. So it's, it's quite intense, but that's that's a good sign for me. If you have one interview of a company and then they hire you and they don't really, didn't know you before that, it seems a bit like sketchy, like who else is going to be working for them? But when you've got a, is, there's such a thing as being too rigorous, but at least a couple stages and something more than just a chat is often a, often a good way to assess someone. So yeah, I got the offer from Gartner and I had, I think, two other offers on the table as well. One from a startup, one in a different kind of sales role based in Leeds and then the Gartner offer um, and then decided for Gartner in the end just because great name to have on your CV and uh, the whole interview process was really nice. The recruiters were fantastic and I, could, I saw it as something I could kind of see myself doing well in and as it was a sales job, no limit on commission and still a nice kind of base salary, I thought, yeah, it's a no-brainer as a, as a young grad. You want some money. If you work hard, you get more money kind of thing. That's that's almost how sales works. Um, and there was that potential to earn quite a lot of money as well if you do well. So I joined that and that I got the offer in, I think, October of my final year. So quite early on and I accepted it in November. So I was kind of sorted for a job before the, the pandemic hit, thankfully, because I know how hard it was for, for some of my friends once the pandemic hit to try and find those jobs, doing the on online interviews, not being able to kind of meet in person. So I was lucky to have that. And that started in September and they got to do a really good six week sales training academy that's taught by kind of people that have been on the Gartner floor and had really good, a lot of success. And then they go and teach the newcomers into Gartner, right? This is how Gartner works. This is how sales work. This is how we do sales. And this is how we work with our kind of technology counterparts because really you are giving um, extremely important advice to these organizations, which if you get, if it get if it gets wrong, then obviously that can be devastating for your clients. So you need to make sure you're linking with the right analysts. You're making sure you're meeting all their needs. And um, if they need to expand their Gartner services, you obviously do that and get paid well for it. So that was really good. Enjoyed the training in the first few months there. And I got put into like a bit of a dream team as I was in uh, financial services for UK and Ireland, which is pretty much right up my street and Africa actually. Um, but in kind of mid or late December, Anthony, the, um, the CEO of, of Encode Club reached out as they were recruiting for an operations manager. So, I thought I was enjoying myself at Gartner a lot and I was looking forward to having kind of a full year to crack at it. Um, but he sent over the, the job description, which I read through and it was pretty much right up my street. So I thought I've, I'd be silly not to just at least do the interview and find out a bit more about what the role would be, what Encode Club aims to do for the next year. Um, spoke to a few of my friends as well around kind of what should I do in this decision? Because it's a, obviously a very big decision having only been at Gartner for a few months um, and Gartner being a lot more secure than Encode Club, which is, really a startup small team five people um back to where i'm, I'm used to um but yeah I had the chat with anthony and, and met his co-founder damir as well who, and they were both really cool 
and really well connected and knowledgeable in the space. And it is back into crypto and blockchain, which is where where I think I ultimately wanted to be. Um, so that was very appealing as well. So it was a really tough decision though. Um, and leaving Gartner was hard. I'd made a lot of good friends there and love my team as well. But um, I think it is the right decision because it's one of those things where if I didn't do it, I feel a year or two down the line, I might start regretting it. And especially seeing blockchain and crypto take off now, um, I'm, I'm really enjoying being in the space and getting to meet lots of cool speakers and uh, interacting with student societies all over the globe and getting them involved in hackathons, seeing cool hackathons come out, as uh, cool projects come out of those hackathons and um, helping the kind of investment decisions as to where, who Encode Club should invest in as well. So yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a journey and I'm very thank, thankful to, to the team at Gartner and, and all my friends who helped me to make the, the decision as well. Wow, that's 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 a that's a very very um, interesting story because um, just trying to put myself in your shoes, where I you know if I had a job at a very very good company, um, one of the biggest in the globe, um, and I, I I've actually like already been through all the induction. You know, I'm in a great team, um, and the set path is very clear onwards. I, I really don't think I'd have the courage to make the move because, you know, especially in the pandemic as well, because, you know, like where everyone's really latching onto any sense of security they have, job, um, income, health, anything. So, you know, really having, really having that, you know, um, sense of certainty that you wanted to um, give back to the blockchain community, um, you know, um, going back to your roots, um, sort of overlapping with what you started with Lucas. I think that I think that's really brave of you. Um, so yeah, hats off to you for that. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was it was a really tough decision. But um, my my friend Jack, who's kind of been a bit of a mentor to me, he's a bit older and, and works in venture capital. But he he basically posed the question as um, if you go and work for Encode Club, this startup, when you go to work for an Encode for a startup, you're basically investing your own time and career kind of potential into the the founders. So the only real question you need to ask yourself is, is do you believe in these the kind of founders and what they do? Um, and I'd seen, I already knew that Anthony was very, very hardworking and uh, connect, well connected in the space and saw the value that the Encode Club can bring to the, the blockchain community as well. And that kind of made the decision for me, despite it obviously being like a bit of a pay cut and you lose all the, the cool benefits of Gartner and health and uh, had to pay back my starting bonus, which is painful. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was kind of the, you're investing your own time and kind of taking the wage cut because it could could result in a, a much better future and like faster uh, rise to to being where you want to be but yeah i think when you're young it's it's a good time to take risks so uh go for it so when you took that big risk right with anko club did you see something um down the line where you thought you know if i make this big step it's gonna be a it's it's gonna be very risky i'm gonna have to give up a lot that I currently have, but I see myself, you know, um, I see myself um, being this as an opportunity, you know, as a stepping stone to something you look forward to in the future. Yeah, so I think I've always wanted to either on my own startup or uh, kind of be um, high up in a startup and be there at the inception. Um, so the opportunity of Encode Club is what it, it hopefully gives me is a much better network within crypto and blockchain which is likely where i will start my startup and it uh, gives me a lot more independence and uh, responsibility as well so kind of with gartner you have to prep for calls and client stuff and but it, so say you're trying to get a prospect on if it doesn't go well it doesn't go well you just get a bit less commission whereas say in code club if an event doesn't go well or i do something wrong it has tangible consequences so um you have to make sure that everything's getting done on time everything's right um, it's also increased responsibility as well because I'm sort of uh, so I've got an intern now as well, which is really useful, and uh, he's he's fantastic. He's based in America, so the time zone's a bit tricky, but um, he's really good as well. And he's currently in university doing a, a degree in basically fintech, which is amazing that you can do that now. I wish that had existed uh, when I was at university for sure. Um, but yeah, being able to kind of work with a team as well um, is really useful. So uh, I think hopefully it'll put me in better stead to do my own thing perhaps in the future. And the second thing was just the potential I see for Encode Club to grow and kind of expand the network of, of blockchain developers because there's only really 
three to 5,000 blockchain developers in the world at the moment and for a, well, over a trillion dollar market cap industry. So that seems a very, 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 very uh, unbalanced way of, uh, way of life. So trying to bring more blockchain developers in the space and the best way to do that really is through universities, through blockchain development clubs, through normal development clubs, through entrepreneurship clubs and, and getting those people involved in being educated in blockchain and then participating in hackathons, learning how to code in blockchain um, is really the way to do that. And that's the way to make sure that the, the, the industry succeeds really, because if, if we're stuck with 5k developers, there's, it's not going to go very far. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, that's really brilliant. Um, all the best to your career right now. Um, we Thank you. wish you the best. Um, that, that's such, such a brave decision. And I hope, uh, I hope it, I hope it pays off, uh, the way you wanted it to. Cheers. I mean, I mean, another, another small team that I've kind of seen your involvement in is the Youth Vote UK. Um, that's kind of yeah. starting up, yeah. Um, could you talk a bit about like what they're about, what they're doing, and kind of what's, sure, what's yeah. coming? Yeah. So the Youth Vote UK is a, is a non-profit, um, it's going to be a charity soon, and it's aimed at basically increasing youth voter engagement and youth voter turnout in the UK. And uh, is run by a friend, Alex Cairns, and he kind of, he was recruiting for loads of people to what I think it was in October uh, to kind of expand the team and get it going again because it had been a bit quiet since the 2017, uh, 2019 elections. I can't remember these days. Um, but, and, and he wanted to basically ramp it up again, uh, get more people involved and, and form it into a proper charity, get funding, start doing more events and having an impact on democracy in the UK because really at the moment, young people don't vote as much as other age groups. So when politicians go to make policy, young people generally are the, the kind of the last people they consider because they know that doing something which doesn't benefit or even uh, disadvantages young people, they'll have less of a kind of retaliation in, in the voting, in polls and in, in the voting. So they know that anything they do, if they, if they need to save money in, in this policy or something, they can kind of just take away from young people because they won't, they won't really feel the effects of it as much as if they say did it to to older people, um, which is obviously not ideal, especially when um, young people are going to be carrying the future of the country forwards. So uh, we just really want to in increase youth participation and doing that apolitically, I think is the, the the best way to do that because as soon as you start siding with one side, then the whole of it, the way that politics is polarized today, it kind of just, you lose half your audience. Um, so we kind of wanted to make sure that it was apolitical so that we can engage people from all aspects of the spectrum. And at the end of the day, the more pe young people that go out and vote, the more young people have have voices that, that carry weight in politics. So um, that's really what, what the youth vote is trying to do. Yeah, it, it's that's ridiculous true. when you look at the stats because you always see that like 19 to 25 mm -hmm. is like um, so low, like so underrepresented in voting. Um, do you think the the pandemic and kind of the government's response to pandemic will increase kind of um, the youth's involvement in politics going forward? Do you think that young people might be more willing to vote or less willing to vote? Your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah I, I hope so. Um, I think there's definitely a catalyst there for kind of um, for why people should get involved because we're going through a bit of a uh, I don't want to say crisis as a country yet, but a, a moment of significant change with Brexit happening and obviously the pandemic and, and the response to that uh, doesn't look to have been the best when you compare it to, to other countries, uh, specifically in Europe. So there's definitely a reason why people should get out and vote because um, they want, they should, you should, in this moment of kind of a lot of change for the country, you should want to have your, your voice heard. Um, so I really do hope that they do. And I think one of the best, uh, Scotland has a really good way of, encouraging youth participation with lowering the voting age to 16 um, and they, they seem to have higher turnouts because of that within young people because then you're being educated on it earlier. Um, it would be helpful to have more education in schools as well I think but that could be hard to do because the people teaching it might be uh, inherently left-wing or right-wing and then all, they're trying to indoctrinate all those students so it's difficult but I think that there are ways to do it and it, just because a problem is difficult doesn't mean that you should shy away from it you should kind of engage with it and try and think of of cool ways to do that. So yeah. I hope that it does, but I've seen kind of in the past, you've gone through different things like the Brexit vote before that would cause major turnout, higher turnouts and it, it realistically didn't have much of an impact um, on the next general election. So I don't know, we'll see. Hopefully we can we can do some work towards it. Um, 
but one of the the kind of the best the main, main encouraging thing that there was for me for to get involved with the youth vet was um a youtube channel called tl tldr news and they kind of yeah. produce yeah, news have you seen it yeah. yeah um it's really good really really good team that, that run it and they try and cover news stories major news stories and do it really kind of impartially so they'll cover they have a uk channel they have a us channel they have a europe channel they have a worldwide channel and they have the one for like just daily five minute video or you can even podcast it uh, where it gives a summary of the day's news and it's nice that it's uh, impartial because i don't read newspapers because i find that almost all newspapers have some kind of obviously uh leaning and i sometimes sit down and read the newspaper that my parents have got and i'm like this is just you compare that paper to the same article in a, in a paper in the other side of the spectrum and it's just completely inconsistent all the facts are different all the stats are different like how how, how can we have a functioning society when everyone's getting completely different information so i think impartiality is uh, is very important there so um i was kind of really enjoying tldr and thought we need a way to to engage young people in politics and show them that it isn't just just kind of polarized he said she said blah 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 um and that there is actual kind of we need to have an enge engaging conversation around this rather than just ignoring it yeah that's yeah, a really it, unique that's really it, unique thing that your organization is doing it is kind of weird looking back on kind of how my parents had like their upbringing and like how i wouldn't say brainwashed but you know they're, they're certainly controlled by like newspapers and kind of they were brought up by their parents and kind of views are passed on so yeah i think i think education in like because at gcc level in the uk you don't learn about politics you don't learn about political parties you don't and, and i agree with you you know it would, be, it would be hard to do that like apolitically but i think it would be a step in the right direction and, and would increase youth voting in the uk yeah 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 i think i agree with the the kind of the the school thing because I only really got involved in it because I took politics at A-level. Mm. Um, and throughout school, we had these kind of, like, I can't remember what it was called, like general education where you'd learn about things like, um, you'd have loads of, we must have had like six sessions on drugs, six sessions on uh, sex education, five sessions on like healthy eating and stuff. And then we maybe had one one lesson on uh, politics and like how it actually, because you don't even have to go into, this is what this party wants, this is what this party wants. You can say, this is our voting system. This is how it works. This is how other voting systems work um this is how our parliament works and stuff and that can all be done very impartially you don't have to go straight into the other things but something that gives people an interest in politics or at least so they understand how it works and why they should go out and vote um which maybe would be more encouraging if we didn't have first past the post but that's another issue um that would be useful as well uh, rather than having kind of six or seven sessions repeating the same thing over and over again and the same thing for personal finances as well like I obviously quite involved in investment and equities, cryptocurrencies as well. But a lot of people I speak to that are my age, they've got grad jobs, they've now got some savings, they just have no idea what to do with it. So it just sits in the current account, earning 0.01% interest that it is at the moment. Um, and that really is losing money because of inflation, which is um, just going to be, well, fairly high at the moment and probably will increase given the, the recent quantitative easing. So some aspect of kind of investment, or financial literacy and then also some some lessons on politics would be would be very welcome i think in in uk schools speaking of news i uh, just wanted to shine a little spotlight on something that most of us have seen uh in the news recently um what are your thoughts on what's happening with um gamestop stocks um what do you think this means for um the financial sector as a whole because there's you know, there's this notion of Main Street versus Wall Street, right? There's the notion that um, that these big uh, players, hedge funds, if it suits them, you know, um, the free market is good. Um, you know, everyone should be able to trade. Um, everyone are their own independent players. But then, you know, when the free market turns against them, then all of a sudden the rules are bad. So what yep. are your thoughts on um, this this relationship uh, and uh, continuing um, development of, um, I, I, I could say conflicts and uh, differences between uh, Main Street and Wall Street? Yeah, so I didn't I didn't really get involved with the, the GameStop stuff. I, I got lucky on the Doge pump as well because I had a bit of Doge left. Um, <laughs> so I got out of that at a nice price. Um, but yeah, I think the whole, it, it all comes down to that underlying theme of everyone, or not everyone, but a lot of young people and kind of Gen Z and millennials 
don't like the way that current systems work. They see, um, kind of say in the US, there's been a lot of support for politicians such as Bernie, Andrew Yang and Donald Trump, who are all kind of outside the establishment candidates who don't conform to the kind of middle of the road politics uh, in America. And they've got a lot of support because people just want change from the way things are. Because I think one of the main underlying things is obviously uh, disequal distribution of wealth. I think that's starting to have quite a major effect now. And you can see that people say, oh, wages have gone up this this much in the last 30 years. You should be happy. But then you look at inflation and you look at inflation in, um, in a kind of more detailed sense than CPI, because uh, that doesn't really kind of capture everything that... that uh, people need to live um, you see that people's wealth has declined over over years especially in places like the UK and the US at least for the kind of middle and lower classes so there's a lot of just having anger at the the way the system works that you see these people that are ridiculously rich and the the kind of the cool demonstrations of this is how much wealth they actually have I saw one on like Jeff Bezos's wealth uh, counted in rice um, which is quite cool it's like one piece of rice is a uh, hundred thousand dollars and then this is a million this is 10 million and this is what 100 billion or whatever it is and it was absolutely ridiculous so i think people are seeing that kind of wealth and uh what what the power that that wealth has that it could do for society um and i'm kind of angry at that that it's all all kind of kept up top and not really distributed to people people who who need it really so it's been cool seeing things out the gamestop uh situation where you can see on reddit i don't really use reddit but i've seen a lot of it kind of reposted to twitter where people have kind of made a lot of money off gamestop and they can now kind of pay off college loans can uh, pay vet bills for their dogs and stuff which is really nice to to see uh, but i think it does all link the way the systems work at the moment um and obviously a good way to to change that is to go out and vote um but then you, you, there's also the aspect of people think the whole system's against them the donald trump election rigging uh, accusations and things like that so it doesn't work for everyone the, the whole voting thing but i think that's a is quite a cool development and i think it will kind of bring a focus on more of this i, I wouldn't say corruption but collaboration between large head funds uh, large private equity funds that when you look at it they do control most of the economy and you look at who the the main benefactors were from the the massive uh, quantitative easing and the, the trillions of dollars that America recently created uh, to kind of combat the, the economic effects of the pandemic. And you look at who actually ultimately received that and a lot of it has gone to, to companies that are owned by, hedge, uh, by private equity funds. So um, the fact that it's kind of feeding into that monopolization of certain industries is not great for, for um, anti-monopolization and the anti-monopolization laws seem to just ignore most of it um, there's a good newsletter that i subscribe to by uh, matt stoller who does kind of a a weekly essay on just kind of anything really it's mainly us focused but a lot of it talks about monopolization in certain industries and you look at kind of tech these days absolute monopoly in uh by amazon of uh, kind of just online shopping absolute monopoly by you sort of duopoly maybe by netflix and, and amazon prime uh maybe sky gets in there but it's not that popular i don't think so there's not much choice for consumers anymore. You kind of, this is your, this is what you have to do or you, you don't have access to, to online streaming. So yeah, I think it is cool that it's highlighted that, but where we go from here, I, I have no clue. While you're on the topic of um, distribution of um, like wealth, right? Um, you mentioned, you mentioned Andrew Yang. Um, I, yeah. I actually followed his campaign quite quite extensively yeah. last year because he was such a vibrant figure um i really wasn't that interested in politics but mm -hmm. you know having having a candidate that can actually speak you know speak and connect with people it was it was quite refreshing um in u.s politics and one key pitch throughout andrew yang's campaign was universal basic income and at first when he actually pitched that all the candidates laughed at him, right? The freedom dividend of $1,000 every single month. And everyone laughed at him, right? Um, but then as his voice actually grew, people actually started endorsing that. Uh, for example, Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk, and uh, the list goes on. And when the pandemic actually hit, we see a form of this freedom dividend, universal basic income, where um, we see it through relief checks, right? So. 
Um, on the topic of the distribution of wealth, um, do you have any thoughts on universal basic income? Yeah, I think um, I did enjoy Andrew Yang's campaign. I think one of the most refreshing things about his campaign was just that he he was very straightforward with his answers. Uh, so obviously a lot of politicians these days, I think I saw Matt Hancock on the news, would avoid giving a straight answer to a yes or no question for like a good four minutes, which is quite impressive actually. But obviously when, when you're a voter, or especially a young person, you see that, you're like, how, how is this person representing our country? Just quite clearly. And I know it, it because his party doesn't want to have a defined position on on such an issue, but it's it's really frustrating for a, a voter. Like, why can you not just tell the truth? Why can't you just simply give your opinion? Um, so seeing him in, in some of the debates as well, like the the uh, moderator would give a long question and just say, yes, that's I think we should do that. <laughs> um, so that's quite fun. And yeah, UBI, I think, is quite a, is a cool idea. It's been around for decades since kind of, I think Friedman was one of the, the first people to encourage it also called helicopter money because it's literally dropping money out of helicopters to people and i think i think it's very cool it has to be done the right way obviously um maybe the freedom dividend of a thousand dollars per month to every single uh, u.s citizen adult citizen would have been maybe a bit much but um is the way that they kind of fund it as well was andrew yang proposed a, a vat tax because they didn't really have one they have similar taxes in america but not really a vat tax because VAT is hard to avoid for corporations, whereas currently you get a lot of corporations, say Amazon, who paid like $10,000 in taxes a couple of years ago. Um, and they're, they're kind of assume, assuming all this capital and coming these massive companies and using like US roads, US whatever, but not paying tax for it. So that seems a bit unfair, obviously, particularly on smaller businesses who are trying to compete and they just have tax bills, whereas uh, large companies don't. So they were going to introduce a VAT so that kind of tax is an unavoidable thing for, especially for the larger corporations and then use them, the money from that to, to redistribute it to citizens of, of America. And one, one example that he kept giving, Andrew Yang kept giving was that truck drivers in 10 years, 90% will be out of the job because automated truck driving. Um, so what do they then go and do? There's 3 million truck drivers in America. Where, how do they reskill themselves like everyone says they should? Um, and it's going to take time, obviously. So the the freedom dividend would be a way to to take the money that's going to be gained from those from AI and automated driving and giving that back to the people whose whose jobs it's replacing. So that was quite a nice kind of circular economy. But I think that one of the the ways it could work in the UK is that we do have a lot of we we have a good welfare system in the UK. I think it's it's quite good, but it, it definitely needs improving. Um, so maybe not everyone, obviously, I don't think everyone needs um, $1,000 a month or £1,000 a month or £500 a month, whatever they decide. Uh, there's definitely people that are already quite wealthy. So maybe it could be as in the form of tax relief or it could be in the form of um, just for, for a certain kind of income brackets or um, net wealth brackets. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept. And I, think it, I don't think it will be around for a few more years yet. But the fact that they did it during the pandemic and gave people kind of... Uh, thousand dollars two thousand dollars in the us um seems to be quite useful and uh, really helped out some people but i saw a statistic where um they, the the money going to people in the us they got like one thousand two hundred dollars each and then if you kind of added up all the money given to corporations through the bailouts and divided that per person in the us it would have been twenty two thousand dollars each so the fact that they can give the, the idea of this economic stimulus is to get the economy going and the best way to do that is to get money into people's hands and then encourage them to go out and spend it. So one way to do that is not actually giving them money, but giving them vouchers that have like an expiry date. So you need to go and spend this. You can spend it anywhere, but you have to spend it by this or you lose it. So that's a great way to kickstart the economy. So why not just give the money to people that need to spend it and they can choose the businesses and then you're not propping up kind of failing businesses where it has no demand and that removes the aspect of um, kind of politicians giving loads of money to private equity firms because they back the the campaigns so i mean giving more money to obviously businesses need some money but giving more money to consumers to kickstart the economy is probably a, a less a, a fairer way to do it i'd say it's a much fairer way to do it yeah that's really interesting actually um because you know this just going around of putting money directly in people's hands and that actually making a difference uh to the economy so i guess we'll see more of that um in the coming years and i think the pandemic was a start it, it was like a pilot 
um, you know, to see if this could work. So um, hopefully we can see whether um, this could be adopted on a larger scale, um, but continuously, um, yeah, in uh, many different nations other than the US. Yeah, I mean, calling back to what you said before, that's the monopoly on like Netflix and Amazon Prime, things like that. Um, we, we all are kind of in the blockchain space. It's kind of offered as a solution. Um, do you have any like upcoming DeFi projects, protocols that you're interested in, um, that you're looking at? Um, I could probably guess a few, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, DeFi is something I need to, to keep doing research into. Uh, definitely a really cool, cool part of the space. I'm... Uh, I like Uniswap, obviously, kind of the biggest, the most obvious one. Uh, but there's cool things like one, I think a few months ago, I was reading about this idea of a no-loss lottery. So people would uh, stake DAI, which is obviously a stable coin kind of pegged to the US dollar. And through staking, you can generate interest. So it's like 6% a year, much better than banks, obviously, but it's slightly riskier. And so the no-loss lottery, the, the idea is you put your DAI into this uh, smart contract and everyone else does. And then each week there's a, a lottery drawn and uh, all of the, the interest that's been generated by that smart contract and all the die in there that's, that's currently staking is then given to a winner or given to a few winners. So you're not actually at any point you can just withdraw your die and then say the thousand die that you'd put in is still a thousand die, which is a thousand dollars. But each week you've kind of been there in the contest to, to win all of the interest that was accumulated during that week. I thought that was a really cool invention and uh, it's not too distant from what we see in regular life and i think that's the best way to transition people into to seeing like how cool DeFi is rather than throwing them like synthetic uh, derivatives which no one's going to understand unless you've been in the space for for months um <laughs> that's a cool project um and then there's there's other ones as well like Aave is pretty cool um obviously chain links nice in the fact that it's going to kind of underpin most of the the DeFi ecosystem um, and I enjoy the, the Link Marines uh, meme. So, <laughs> so I think, yeah, there's a lot to see in DeFi, but I, I haven't done as much research as I'd like to into it. And obviously Ethereum prices are, or gas prices are super high at the moment. So it's kind of hard to get involved in it uh, when you're paying $50 gas. So hopefully ETH 2.0 will, will solve that a bit. Otherwise I think DeFi might get uh, kind of choked out by Ethereum gas fees. But yeah, I think those would be my, my main things. I'm surprised you make, mentioned Polkadot. I thought you were a big Polkadot fan. Yeah, I like Dot. Dot's <laughs> cool. Uh, I think just the main thing, the cool thing about Dot is the team behind it. Um, mm. And that's a lot of investors, particularly VCs, kind of, they invest in, in teams more than ideas. Because if you invest in ideas, then you're, there's a, a quote that one of my friends told, said to me that if you invest in ideas, then you're limited to your own imagination. Because if someone pitches you an idea that you don't understand or you don't know what the technology does, then you'll disregard it. But if you understand that this is uh, a potential really successful founder, they've built a great team around them, they've got the work ethic, they've got the knowledge, then even if you don't understand their idea as much yet, um, it's worth doing your due diligence into that. And if you believe in the team, it's gonna, even if say the idea gets uh, torpedoed by some regulation, you believe that they can bounce back or pivot off from that. So yeah, I think um, the Polkadot team is really, really cool. And it's a cool project as well. And the interoperability is going to be really important in the future. So I'm glad to see the, the focus on that. Um, speaking, of, speaking of entrepreneurship and uh, the blockchain landscape, startups, what advice would you have to students who are at, you know, at a junction in their career where they're, where they're, um, where they're like looking for a job, they're, like, um, you know, they're facing difficulties or like they they've got a secure job. So kind of like, you know, um, what you actually encountered and they actually have something else, right? That they feel um, is something that they're actually truly passionate about, but there's, they're, they're at this junction, you know, they're at this um, stance, standstill, like whether they should, you know, keep going at this secure paying job, um, you know, for the next uh, few years, get a good pay, you know, um, probably like climb up the corporate ladder, or, you know, just like um, make a huge risk, either go work for a startup or make your own startup. Um, if students or like postgrads are at this junction in their career right now, what sort of words of advice would you have for them? Um, yeah, I guess, I don't know if I'm the best person to answer this question, but 
I would say where the best time to take your risks is when you're young because you don't have like a mortgage you don't have a family depending on you etc so if you want to do something like this maybe it's best to work in the kind of secure stable job or get experience and build your your network for a couple of years or, or a few months or whatever it depends on the individual situation but it, if you want to do something and you think you have a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit in you then the best time to do it is is as soon as possible really as soon as you have kind of your idea and perhaps a good team sorted and you think it's viable, just go for it because the longer you delay, there's A, the more chance that people get there first and do it better than you. There's also the chance that you kind of just keep, you say, I'll do it next month or I'll do it next year. And then that just keeps getting delayed and delayed. And then you get kids, family, house, um, and you can't really afford to, to quit that, that well-paying job because you can become so dependent on the income. But when you don't have that many outgoings, um, you can afford to take risks if you have, if you have the kind of a bit of capital behind you. So uh, I'd always try and say like save up so you have enough money for kind of three to six months to sustain you if, if it does go bad because that's enough time to hopefully find a, if you if the startup fails you can go back and find a, a normal job or try another startup. It gives you enough time to to sustain yourself and you don't have to kind of panic about that. Um, but yeah, uh, for interviews and such, I would say just make yourself stand out. Uh, the best thing about my interviews for even with investment banking was I had the blockchain and cryptocurrency society on my CV and this was in kind of 2017, 2018. Um, and obviously that stood out a lot and it's pretty much all I spoke about in, in interviews that and baseball, because those are the two things that stand out from all the other candidates, but every other candidate there has got a degree in economics or finance or something engineering. Uh, every other candidate there has done like extracurricular activities, like the trading investment society, the entrepreneurship club. Uh, but any way you can make yourself stand out, whether that be a, a funny story or um, some rogue experience you have, uh, like a crypto and blockchain society or playing baseball or frisbee or something like that, is a, a good way to make yourself stand out and be memorable to the to the interviewer. So I would encourage that. Yeah. Thank you for yeah, that. Just... I'm really, I'm really sure that's going to be uh, quite valuable to um, all our members. So thank you for that. Yeah, and just a, just a quick kind of short final question. Um, do you have any favorite books, preferably three, if you have any favorite books? Uh, it doesn't have to be blockchain related. It could be anything yeah. like life, whatever. Yeah, so I think um, it's actually my laptop is, is resting on it, but there's one called uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, who um, is very, it's, it's kind of old. It's like 10, 20 years old now, but it's, it's all around personal finance and reevaluating what is an asset and what is a liability, the kind of the foundations of investing. Uh, and it's told in quite a cool way where he's basically his life. He grew up as a kid. He had his dad who worked in um, education and didn't invest and such. And then he had uh, his friend's dad who was very entrepreneurial, owned different businesses. Um, and the lessons he taught him basically are, are what the book is about. So that's one, one good one. Uh, second one, I enjoy... Um, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson is pretty cool. Um, I don't agree with some of his politics, but the book's very good around kind of self-development, um, understanding what you want. And I think Munoz has dropped out. Mm. But yeah, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. And final one, they're actually all over there. I would say What They Don't Teach You at Harvard Business School is quite a good one just for kind of picking up uh, general business tips that you don't learn in in your degree at university that you learn through kind of experience. Uh, so being able to have uh, that in a book rather than having to put go through like five years of experience in business is, is quite useful as well. Okay, brilliant. Um, I'm sorry for that cutoff. Um, you know what's happening right now. So every day at 8 p.m., um, everyone, the entire country will go out in the streets and bang, bang like a piece of metal or their gates mm -hmm. just like to raise their voice because yeah. um, they're going they're trying to be smart not to go out in the streets to protest because that would legitimize the military to do a coup so they're raising their voice that way which is uh really cool um i i'll assume jake has asked the question um for yeah. the top three favorite books yeah, okay I did. Yeah, I did. um with that i'm aware that um we have run out of time so uh, we don't want to keep you any longer. Uh, we're well aware that you've got a lot of other stuff on your plate. So um, on behalf of Lucaps, we wanted to say a massive thank you 
um, for tuning in today. And um, this is quite quite exciting for us because this is our first part of the podcast series and having our co-founder um, as the guest speaker is really quite honorable. Um, we heard a lot of interesting stories from you today and um, a lot of these will be very interesting to our members and to us as well. So on behalf of Lucaps, just wanted to say a big thank you and we really hope um, we can see you again very soon. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's been it's been good fun and, and good luck for the rest of the, the semester with, with Lucavs and uh, university and also the, the podcast. I'm looking forward to listening to more. Thank you so much, George. Thanks, Thanks George. So much.